Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2a. 1 and 2a. So basically, verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2. We're starting our study through the book of Hebrews this week. Hebrews is um, towards the back of the New Testament. You need help uh, finding it. Now, perhaps you say, well, Pastor, why do we do all these book studies? You know, we've so far, I think, since I've been here, we've studied the book of James, the book of Ephesians. Um, we studied 1 Corinthians. We've studied the book of Acts. We've studied Jonah. And, you know, perhaps you're like, well, you were 11 weeks in the, or 10 weeks, or however many weeks in the book of Jonah. I mean, I, I've never heard of somebody doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, the reason why we do book studies reason why I like to preach through a book of the Bible. One, it brings consistency. Two, you can never say that, that you know, I'm uh, looking at your life and trying to find something in your life because I'm just preaching what is next in the Bible. So if it applies to you, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit speaking directly to you. So that's, that's the second thing. And third, I think we need to know our scripture. And I think too many Christians today don't know their scripture and perhaps you say well well you know you were in first corinthians for a year and that took you know seemed like that took forever and it was the same sermon over and over again well if you believe that that just shows that you weren't listening um it wasn't the same sermon over and over again and it wasn't the same uh, message over and over again and so if that's the case i challenge you um, as i will today in this study that you dive deeper into your scripture and see what it has to say to us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It will take us a while to get through the book of Hebrews. It's a deep book, a lot of information, um, a lot of stuff for us to learn from God's Word. So I'm going to read that to you this morning. That shouldn't take me too long to read two verses. One and uh, the beginning of verse 2, I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The title of this message is simply this. God speaks. God speaks. There are some fundamental questions in this life that all of the world's religions and philosophies attempt to answer. Especially as we reflect on the frailty of human life and the shortness thereof. Here's the questions. Is there a God? Can we know him? How can we know him? And how can we make sense of human suffering and the certainty of death? Does it even matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your beliefs? Humanity has been seeking and asking these questions for a very, very, very long time. And I have some good news. As we start our study through the book of Hebrews, we will find the answer to all of these questions and more. But let me be clear. The answer that we discover in the book of Hebrews, the answers that we find there are not the same answers that we find in the modern views of our day. You see, we live in a time when tolerance and non-judgment are the primary virtues of our day. 
There is no such thing as objective universal truth, but instead truth is viewed as subjective. And so because of this, whether whatever religion you decide makes the most sense to you and gives you the most fulfillment, then that religion is right for you. And I am no position to say that you are wrong. So if you believe in Islam or Hinduism or Judaism or Buddhism or Mormonism or any other ism that you want to come up with or any other world religion or even a combination of all of the world religions, as long as you're not hurting someone else, then I have no right to say that what you're believing is a lie. That's the world we live in. And if I do say it's a lie, then suddenly I'm judgmental and I'm intolerant of your belief system. That's the mindset of our culture. Today, the only person that our culture will tolerate or the only person our culture will not tolerate is someone who insists that their view is the only right view. It's okay to be intolerant of those people. This letter to the Hebrews very clearly and plainly puts that mindset to rest because it affirms that God is. Not only that God is, but that God has spoken and that his son, who is the incarnation of his revelation, is in fact supreme over everything. Furthermore, not only does it say God is, and God has spoken through his son who is supreme over all things. It demands, God demands total allegiance. And furthermore, not only does he demand total allegiance, he will not tolerate any rivals to who he is. If anyone turns from him to any other system, to any other person, or to any other way of approaching God, it is a direct turn towards certain judgment from God. He alone is our help. He alone is worthy of praise. He alone gets all the glory. And for this reason, we must always live in humble submission to him at all times. And we must always trust him in the trials of our life and even in the midst of our sufferings. The theme of Hebrews, as we will see, is not about us. It's not about how great we are, nor is it about what we can necessarily gain from God. The theme of Hebrews is the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ above all. And for that reason, we should be motivated in our faith because we have an understanding that in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our tribulations and in the midst of our sufferings and in the midst of our pains, there is our God who rests supremely above it all. And since this is our first message in the book of Hebrews, I'd like to give us some background of the book, not so I can bore you. It might be boring to you, but I think it's important that we understand a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Typically, I don't do this in an introduction, but I feel it's necessary for a better understanding of the book as we move forward. I give the background partially because there are many opinions about the book of Hebrews by many different scholars. And so I'm going to be brief because there are pages upon pages 
concerning Hebrews. And so, so I want to give you kind of a condensed version um, of the background of the book of Hebrews. So if you study Hebrews at all, you know that there is a considerable debate over who even wrote the book of Hebrews. Many hold to the viewpoint that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of, he of, of Hebrews. In fact, Clement from Alexander has given us one of the earliest statements concerning the authorship by Paul when he said Paul wrote Hebrews and Luke translated it into Greek. However, some would say that the language and thoughts from the book of Hebrews are not like Paul's language. Furthermore, there's a statement in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, which make it, even, uh, make it seem like the author is a second generation Christian who heard and believed the testimony of the apostles. And Paul heard the gospel directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ, which he says so in Galatians chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So if Paul was not the author, then who was the author? Some people say, well, Barnabas was the author. In fact, Tertullian makes the claim that, that and Barnabas was the author. Martin Luther says, well, Apollos was the author. And there is even a claim that Priscilla perhaps wrote the book of Hebrews. All of those views have problems with them. They'll have some holes in them. So I think it's easiest to say, God knows who wrote it. I don't. <laughs> I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But God knows. And, and we can make spec speculation about it. But truthfully, we don't know. Now, not only is there a disagreement about who wrote it, but there's also a disagreement about when it was written and to whom it was written. Most scholars come to a consensus that Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, AD 70. The reason being, if the temple had been destroyed, the author certainly would have drawn attention to that as they made their argument for the supremacy of Christianity over Judaism. And there's no mention of the temple being destroyed at all in the book of Hebrews. What we do know is that those that received the letter were suffering some form of persecution, but not to the point of them being martyred. So this would seem to indicate that it was not written to the church in Jerusalem, since both Stephen and James had been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. When the letter concludes, the author sends a greeting from those from Italy. This could mean either that the author sends a greeting from Italy where he is living, or it could mean that those from Italy who are living away send their greeting back home to Italy. If this is those living in Italy sending their greeting home, then the letter would most likely be written to Christians in Rome just before Nero began to persecute them in AD 64. However, we don't know for sure. But we would do well to remember that there are a few exegetical issues or a few biblical issues that depend on determining a geographic location of the recipients of the letter. Who was the book written to? Who was it written to? The title of the book, if you look in your Bible, it says the letter to the Hebrews. That title was or dates back to the last quarter of the second century. And perhaps earlier, but it was not part of the original manuscript. In the original manuscript, it doesn't say a letter to the Hebrews. Most scholars believe it was written to a group of second generation Jewish believers who were facing temptation because of persecution to return to Judaism. There are all kinds of Old Testament quotes throughout the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews presupposes a detailed knowledge of the Jewish sacrificial system. 
Those to whom it was written had begun their faith and they joyfully submitted to the trials and persecutions that faith in Christ brought. However, as trials continued, some of them had stalled in their Christian growth and they thought back to the good old days when they could just kind of go through the, the motions of religion and not have to worry about, you know, when they could just kind of do the things that they had always done and not have to worry about any kind of persecution for their faith. Their anxiety about the looming persecution attempted them to abandon their faith in Christ and return to Judaism because it was more tolerated. They were tempted to look for temporary relief at the expense of leaving the supremacy of Christ. And therefore, as we read this, we will notice that the author at various times strongly warns the readers against this danger. He calls it a word of exhortation. And there are several sections where he gives some very strong warnings. Now, here's the thing. As we look at this, we're forced to say that every one of us is prone to drift into our former ways of life, especially when it comes to following Jesus, especially when following Jesus proves to be challenging and costly. It's like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's the way we are. Furthermore, when believers are second-generation believers, they're, they're more prone to wander, more, more prone to simply go through the motions of religion, much like what we see today amongst Christianity in America as people just go through the motions of religion and they don't adopt the faith as their own. Hebrews exposes that kind of religion as saying it's inadequate and it proves that our faith must endure and that it is placed, our faith is placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly enough, Hebrews is the one New Testament book that expressly refers to Jesus Christ as a priest. It's implied in other books, but not just expressly affirmed as it is in Hebrews. Hebrews shows us how Jesus fulfilled the entire Old Testament ceremonial system of the temple sacrifice. Hebrews brings the Old Testaments to the Old and the New Testaments together and demonstrates the underlying unity of the Bible proceeding from one author, which is the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, when the author of Hebrews cites the Old Testament scriptures, he almost always ascribes the quotes to God. Leon Morris in the Expositor's Bible Commentary writes, The effect is to emphasize the divine authorship of the whole Old Testament for the author. What scripture says, God says. The overall theme is Jesus Christ, supreme over everything. And therefore, because Jesus Christ is supreme over all things, the Christian must endure any trial by faith. If we were to look up outlines of the book of Hebrews, there'd be a lot of them. I think the best ones are those that focus on the superiority of Christ. So in chapters 1 through 4, the focus is on the superiority of Christ over all in his person. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he is superior to the prophets. 
In chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 2, verse 18, he is superior to angels. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, he is superior to Moses. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he is superior to Joshua. In chapters 5 through 10, we see that Christ is superior to all in his priesthood. In chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 28, he's superior to Aaron and his priesthood. In chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, he is superior to the old covenant. His promises are superior in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. He offers a superior ta tabernacle in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. He offers a superior sacrifice in chapter 9, verse 15 through chapter 10, verse 18. In chapters 10, 19 through 13, uh, verse 19 through verse 13, or through chapter 13, we see that Christ is superior in all things, and that should cause us to have an abiding faith to face all trials. In chapter 10, 19 through 39, Abiding faith obeys God when faced with trials. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 40, abiding faith is illustrated in the scriptures. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, abiding faith looks to Jesus and submits to his discipline. In chapter 12, verse 14 through chapter 13, verse 25, abiding faith is expressed in practical holiness with God's people. So we have an overview. We have an intro to the book. Let's look at these first two verses a little more deeply. And what we're going to notice right off the bat from the beginning of the book of Hebrews is that God has spoken to us through his word and through his son, which is the supreme and final revelation. This is why the message is simply titled God Speaks. We find in these verses two sections of God speaking. First, we see that God speaks in the past and then we see that God speaks in the present. So let's quickly look at those issues first God spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets that's what it says when we talk about God speaking here in Hebrews the first thing we notice is that God spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets it tells us this so that we see that God spoke in the past but I don't know if you noticed it or not. The author of the book of Hebrews starts off with two basic assumptions as we read the book of Hebrews. It just starts off with long ago at many times in many ways God spoke. So there's two basic assumptions. The first basic assumption is that God is. And the second basic assumption is that God speaks. He does not say if God exists or if God speaks, he simply starts off by talking about God. He says, God is. God is. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, is very similar to Genesis when it reads in the beginning, God. In Hebrews, in the Greek, it would read like this. In many parts and in many ways long ago, God. That's what it would say. The interesting thing is it's not... It's not messing around with some sort of speculation on whether or not God exists. There's no waxing eloquent about the existence of God. There's no persuasive argument that's being made on whether or not God exists to convince those that might be skeptical about the existence of God. It's just very plainly and simply starts off with the fact that God is. He exists. God is central to everything, according to the Hebrew author. In fact, the author of Hebrews uses the word God 68 times times in the book of Hebrews, which is about one time for every 73 words. Now, 
I know that there are a lot of people in our world today that would claim to be agnostic, which means that they, that they would say they are not certain whether or not God exists. And then there are those that claim to be atheists, which would say, I don't believe that God exists. I typically say that most atheists are actually agnostic. And I, then I usually set out to prove it, but we're not, we don't have time to that. But that is, that's besides the point. What I know is that the Bible has an answer for anyone who claims to be either atheist or agnostic. And that is this. Their doubts or beliefs on whether or not God exists does not affect that God is. Their doubts and their beliefs, if they say, well, God, I believe God doesn't exist, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the fact that God is. They say, well, I don't know whether God exists. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the fact that God is. That's the answer that the scripture gives. The Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God. It just assumes it. It doesn't set out to prove. You, you can go read through the scriptures. It doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. It just assumes that God exists. It's a prime reality that God exists. If you want to ignore him, then you do so at your own peril and eventual judgment. Unbelief in God is not about being rational. It's not about, well, I'm going to rationalize who God is. That's not what it's about. It's about being sinful. And so we see that, that God is. And from there, we quickly move to this, that God spoke. God spoke. God is not some silent force. God has chosen to reveal himself to the human race by speaking. In Romans chapter 1, Paul lays out for us the fact that God has revealed himself through what is known as general revelation, known as creation. So we look around, we see creation, that's general revelation. The case is made that people should be able to look at creation and the complexity of it and tell that there must be some sort of design in creation. And therefore, knowing that there is a creator, you see a painting, you know there's a painter. You see creation, you know that something must have created it. And Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after after night they display the knowledge there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard their voice goes out in all the earth and their words to the ends of the world job says this and these are but the outer fringe of his works how faint the whisper we hear from him who then can understand the thunder of his power even though we should be able to look at creation and see that there's a creator, many will reject it because people love their sin so much that they suppress the truth that God reveals through his creation. Now the author of Hebrews is not focusing on general revelation because he's writing to the Jews who accepted God as a creator. And so the author is focusing in on what we call God's special revelation which is God's revelation through his written word. And so he says that God spoke to the fathers, meaning their Jewish ancestors, through the prophets. And so he's saying that all of the Old Testament writers 
who re received and recorded God's message, the Bible, to give to God's people, were inspired completely by God. And this theme is throughout the book of Hebrews. Now, that's vital for us today because we live in a relativistic time. When most Americans insist that there are no absolutes, whether they're speaking about truth or about morality, they say, well, there are no absolutes. As a society, we've consistently removed God and any mention of God from our society. And for this reason, we no longer believe in absolute truth. Sometimes when somebody tells me that they don't believe in any absolute truth, I just want to smack them. And if they get mad, I just want to say, why are you mad? You don't believe that that was wrong because there is no absolute truth according to you. That's what's felt good to me. It felt good to smack you. And so you can't tell me that I'm wrong. And so anyway, that's, uh, I don't recommend you do that. That's probably not, not going to help you win anybody to the Lord. But that's what I want to do sometimes. We're told that we can't know for certain anything. So there's nothing more important than what we read here. That God has spoken. God has given special revelation through his word, and it is inspired. Now, that doesn't mean that when we say that God's word is inspired, that doesn't mean that it is God dictated. Often when someone hears that, that the Bible is inspired or that it is the breathed out word of God, like we read in 2 Timothy, people immediately think that God spoke audible words and prophets wrote them down. That's what a lot of people think when they think of God's word as inspired. They picture there's some guy with this pen, right? And he has this pen or he has a tablet and a chisel or something. I don't know. But he, he's sitting there and he's listening and God's speaking to him. And he is writing it out as God dictates to him what to write. That's not what inspiration means. That happened on occasion, like with the Ten Commandments, but that's not how the Bible came into our world. Rather, God used the personalities of the authors that were writing it, and he guided their wills and guided them to record without air God's message to us in the words of the original manuscripts. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God used the Holy Spirit to influence the minds of select men so that he could infallibly communicate his will to them. So what they said, or what they wrote, God said. If God had not chosen to speak, and had God not revealed himself through the scripture that we have in our hands today, no one can know him. Do you understand that? Do you understand how important the scripture is? Do you understand how important it is when we read that God spoke? Because if God didn't speak, no one would know him. No one. Men would sit around and they would, they would speculate. 
And they would fly, uh, be all philosophical about it. And they'd have these great conversations about who they believe that God is. And maybe they'd even have great debates and dialogue about who God is. But if he had not revealed himself, they would all be simply guesses on whether God existed or not. What is even worse is that because man is sinful and fallen, Satan, who is the God of this world, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, and his purpose for doing so is to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. He controls the world and scripture is clear. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God because they are foolish to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned and if God had not spoken, no one would ever know him. Apart from God's special revelation, no one is capable of understanding or even knowing who God is or whether God even exists. This is the point. God spoke so that we can know him. The point of God's special revelation is vital because it reveals a common misconception among Christians in general. Because here's the thought process. We think that anyone at any time can choose to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe in him. That's what we think. We think that anyone at any time can choose to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe in him. We think that we have to explain the gospel to them and then people are free to decide whether they're going to believe it or not. There's a problem with that thought process. And you're not going to hear this in most churches, by the way. And in fact, this what I'm about to tell you, you're probably not going to hear in many churches. There's a problem with the thought process where people say, well, all I got to do is explain it and then they choose whether they're going to believe it or not. That is a fundamental denial of the special revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a denial of it. It's saying that special revelation doesn't really exist. Not only is it a denial of special revelation, but it's a denial of the effects of the fall of mankind, which happened way back in the book, very first book of the Bible. It's a denial that man is sinful and that man is controlled by sin and that man is dead. Furthermore, it goes directly against what Jesus Christ himself said. This, listen to what Jesus said when he proclaimed in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 22. This is what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to you little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What was his will? That he would hide it from the wise and understanding. And this. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 10. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. What's it say? Some things, part of the things... What's it say? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is. Who knows who the Son is? How many people? No one knows who the Son is except the Father. So who knows who the Son is? The Father. Then he says this. He adds to it. Or who the Father is. So no one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is. Except the Son. 
Ah, but now we get to the real part of it. We said, well, if nobody knows who the Father or the Son is, then how can anybody know Jesus? Well, he says so. So no one knows who the Father is except the Son. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now let me ask you this. If Jesus wills to reveal Himself to everyone, could He have said these words? No. Instead, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the primary factor of whether someone knows God does not lie with that person's choice. Doesn't lie with that person's choice of God. It doesn't rely on that person's choice of Jesus. It relies solely on Jesus' choice of that person. Who knows whether God exists? Those whom Jesus chooses to reveal it to. That's what he says. To say anything contrary to that denies a plain statement of Jesus. And instead, it exalts our, instead of exalting our Lord, it exalts man. and says, well, man can figure it out. The Bible has a unique way of bringing us to humility and showing that if God had never chosen to reveal himself to us through his word, you and I would be lost and in complete and utter spiritual darkness with no hope of knowing him at all. You don't know Christ. If you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not because you sought him. It's because he sought you. It's because he searched after you and he found you and he revealed who the father is and who the son is to you. That's the only reason that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There are three more facts I want us to quickly see from verse one concerning God's special revelation. I know you doubted whether I'd be able to talk this long on two verses, but I am. Two of them are obvious. The third is implied. First, he writes that God spoke at many times. Or your version might say this. God, uh, your version of the Bible might say this. He spoke in many portions. In fact, that is probably a better translation. In my opinion, the Greek word there is polymeros, which means in many parts or portions. The idea is that God has spoken in multiple and various allotments, which is a reference to the 39 books known as the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the different prophets, and the writings that are historic and historical and poetic books of the Bible. Second, the writer also says this, he spoke in many ways, which is to say that just as he revealed himself in many different ways, he's saying, hey, he used many different modes to reveal himself. The emphasis for us is on the fact that God is diverse in his speech in the Old Testament. Think about it. God utilized great devices to instruct his prophets. He spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning and with the voice of a trumpet. He also spoke to him through a burning bush. He spoke through angels at times. He revealed himself to the Israelites through fire, through thunder, through earthquakes, and through clouds. He performed miracles through Moses to reveal himself. He whispered to Elijah at Horeb in a still, small voice. And Ezekiel uh, was informed by visions and Daniel through dreams. God appeared to Abraham in human form and Jacob as an angel. God declared himself by law, by warning, by exhortation, and by type and by parable. All those speak to how God communicates to us or how he did communicate. 
All of these things are recorded in the scripture. They're given to us for our instruction so that we can go at any time and we can read how God communicated in the Old Testament and we can see what God did and how he communicated to his people. Thirdly, there is an implication that God's revelation in the Old Testament was what we know as progressive revelation. We do not mean that it was a progression from truth to more truth or from less worthy to more worthy or less mature to more mature. As F.F. Bruce points out, how could it be so when he is the same God who is revealed throughout? Human conceptions of God may change, but God does not change. And so we have progressive, progressive revelation. The progression is one from promise to fulfillment. And it's made abundantly clear in the course of this epistle. The men and women of faith in the Old Testament days did not in their lifetime experience the fulfillment of the divine promise in which they had trusted. This verse, or chapter 11, verse 40 tells us, because with this in mind, God had made a better plan. And that better plan is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament develops the picture that clearly points to Jesus. And it gets more and more clear. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't fulfilled until the New Testament revealed Christ to us. And therefore, to understand the Old Testament correctly, it must be viewed through the complete revelation of the New Testament. God spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets using his written word to reveal the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Point number one. Point number two. God speaks in the present, supremely and finally, in his Son. Those opening verses not only tell us that God has spoken, but that God, in his final and definitive revelation comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, interesting enough, as we read verse 1 and verse 2, there's a contrast. Verse 1 tells us long ago, right? It says long ago. Verse 2 says in these last days. In verse 1, we read about the revelation that it was to give to our, given to our fathers. In verse 2, it says to us. And finally, in verse 1, we see how the revelation was given in many times or parts and in many ways by the prophets. In verse 2, it's given by the son. The point, Christ is superior and always to the old. Jesus is superior, and he's God's final word. The Greek word here is huios, which is in son. The emphasis is that the person of his son contains everything. He is the ultimate medium of communication. It was just like when the voice from heaven boomed out when Jesus and Peter and James and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The Greek word here we notice here uh, as we read through this, it says, in these last days. is found in the Septuagint and often refers to the day of the Messiah. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Hebrew says this his word was not completely uttered until Christ came but when Christ came the word spoken in him was indeed God's final word the story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ but there is no progression beyond Christ 
So we see in Christ continuity and contrast. The continuity we see is that God spoke through the prophets and God also spoke through Christ. But the contrast is that the prophets were many. Christ is one. The prophets are partial. Christ is complete. The prophets were sinners. Christ was perfect. The prophets were in preparation. Christ is the fulfillment. There's the contrast of being. The prophets were men. Jesus is the son of God. The theme of the sonship will be reoccurring throughout the whole book of Hebrews. The emphasis on the nature of the son. Jesus is the son of God. Two aspects. He is the son eternally. In other words, he has always been one with the father. He's eternally coexisted. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. And temporarily, he is the son of God incarnate. Meaning that he is born of the Virgin Mary and took on human nature so that he could bear our sin. In these verses, it is the latter that it's speaking to. Jesus is God's eternal, is God's eternal son in human flesh. He has supremely and finally revealed God to us. He is the revelation of the invisible God. A.W. Pink gives this illustration. We're a friend to tell you that he had visited a certain church and that the preacher spoke in Latin, you would have no difficulty in understanding what he meant by saying spoke in Latin. It would intimate that the particular language marked his utterance, such is the thought here. In son has reference to that which characterizes God's revelation. The thought of contrast is that God, who of old had spoken prophet-wise, he now speaks son-wise. Martin Luther says this, how much more Ought we to seize the gospel of Christ, since it is not a prophet speaking to us, but the Lord of the prophets. It's not a servant, but a son, not an angel, but God. And further, it is not our forefathers he is addressing, but us. Quite clearly, the apostle argues in this way, so that every excuse of unbelief is excluded. That's the point. As we look at the book of Hebrews, it's about the Son. Supremely superior over all things. And this church, this word, is written to you and to me. His word, the word of the Son, not the word to the prophets. This is the word, the final word of God's Son given to you. As we read this, Jesus' name is not mentioned here in the beginning. I don't know why. Perhaps it's because the Jewish believers were under pressure to deny the Trinity and go back to Jewish Unitarianism. However, the author will go on to show immediately that the Son is the eternal creator and that the Old Testament affirms the Son to be God. Therefore, to go back to their old way of thinking would be to turn their back on God's present, supremely complete and final revelation of himself and his Son, Jesus Christ. To deny the Trinity is to deny the being of God. So, that was a lot of stuff. Two verses. You might be saying, well, how do I apply that to my life? 
God spoke in the past by the prophets and God speaks in the present supremely and finally by his son. Well, first, we must understand that the entirety of scripture is all about Christ. So how do you apply it? When you're reading the scripture, you understand that it's all about Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. The New Testament reveals to us how Christ is the complete and final revelation of God to us. Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus Christ alone is God's final and sufficient sacrifice for our sons or for our sins. So how does that look? The Old Testament is a schoolmaster, it says, to bring us to Christ. The New Testament shows us how Christ fulfilled the sacrificial system. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament point ahead to Christ. And so, what does that look when I study the Scripture and when I'm reading the Scripture? Well, we need to look at both the Old and the New Testament. Don't just read the New Testament, but you read the Old Testament as well because it's a pointing ahead of what Christ has done and who Christ is. And you read it with an understanding that it's all about Christ. You see, this is what we have a tendency to do. And I don't know how this even idea has crept into the church. We have a tendency to read God's word, Old and New Testament, and read ourselves into the scripture. In fact, I hear, I hear preachers preach sermons where they preach people into the scripture. It happens all the time. And when you're reading the Bible, it's not about you. This isn't about you. It's about God and Jesus, God's revelation of who Jesus is, of his Messiah. And so when you hear a sermon that says something like this, let me give you a good example. I've heard, one, I heard this one recently. You need to slay your Goliath. You ever hear that? You need to slay your Goliath. So what do we do when we say that? We write ourselves into the Old Testament. We're David, and we got to slay our Goliath. When you hear that kind of stuff, you should quickly realize that something is wrong. Because it's not about you. David is a type of Christ. Not a type of you. And so we don't read ourselves into Scripture. You don't read Scripture and then somehow read yourself into it. It's about God and Jesus. Secondly, second application you should not be looking for some sort of new revelation from God because this is his final revelation. It's complete through his son, Jesus Christ. Anytime anyone claims to have some sort of extra biblical or further revelation, they're a false prophet or teacher. And I don't care if it's a kid or an adult. Anytime someone makes a claim about something that is not already revealed to us in scripture, it is false teaching. And we shouldn't support it. We shouldn't lend credence to it. We shouldn't give, we shouldn't be like, oh, hey, we got to read this book or that book because it tells, it tells me something that's not in the Bible. If it's not in here, it's false teaching. God's already revealed it to us. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm talking about this includes Muhammad in the Quran, Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, Mary Baker Eddy and her teachings on Christian science. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's not a part of God's word, it's false. You're a Christian. This is what guides your life. This, God's word. God has spoken divinely and finally in the Old and New Testaments, which point to Jesus Christ, his 
son. You shouldn't be out there seeking some sort of revelation that's outside of God's word. You should be seeking revelation that's inside of God's word. Finally, and this is probably the hardest application, and I might make some of you mad, but that's okay. If you are not reading your Bible and studying it and growing as a Christian, you are in sin. Plain and simple. That's not popular to say. But I want to make it clear. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you should be studying the Bible and growing as a Christian. We should study theology and prophecy and Bible history and Bible-related subjects, and there's nothing wrong with studying those things. However, our study in any of these areas should lead us to a deeper understanding and lead us deeper into Scripture and deeper in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The entirety of Christianity is based on your relationship with Christ. And therefore, if the entirety of Christianity is based upon my relationship with Jesus Christ, I should consistently be trying to grow in my relationship through Bible study. I should be reading God's word and I should be applying it. I should not be able to get enough. I should constantly want to look. I, I love studying the Bible. I don't know if that makes me a nerd or not, but I love it. I love reading. Sometimes I'm preparing my sermon and and. The clock flies by and I look, I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be home right now. And I'm working on my sermon. I love it. This study through the book of Hebrews will help you in your understanding of who Jesus is. And if you've never heard God speak, then I would challenge you to come before God. And I would challenge you to pray and ask him to reveal himself to you through his son as revealed in his written word known as the Bible. This morning you may be here. And you're under strong temptation to abandon Christ and go back to the world. Maybe you're here this morning. You're like, this is just too hard. I want to challenge you to be strengthened and stand firm in the face of your trials. Understand this morning that Christ is worth it. Study your word and grow in your relationship with Christ. You may be here also this morning and perhaps you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and trusted him to save you from your sin. You can do that today. I want to challenge you this morning just to take these application points and I want you to pray through them. Ask yourself, am I in sin? Am I studying God's word? Am I looking for some sort of extra biblical revelation? Is Christ alone enough? Do I understand that his sacrifice is sufficient in the Old Testament and the New Testament is all about Jesus? It's all about him. And we're going to sing a song just a moment. I'm going to be standing down front. Maybe you need to make some sort of decision this morning. Maybe you need to pray or maybe you need to come up here and pray. Or maybe you want me to pray with you about something. I'd gladly do that this morning. Or you can pray in your pew. You can talk to me after the service. But if, if you've heard God speak to you this morning, maybe through his word, I challenge you to respond to that this morning. Let's close with prayer.